Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today is going to be a fun episode. I actually have Jim Heffelfinger and Raina Tucker from the Arizona Game and Fish Department. Today we're going to be talking about Gould's turkeys. We're going to talk about how they got to Arizona, how they're doing now, about the hunts that uh, we have for them, and all about Gould's turkeys. So Raina and Jim, I'm happy to have you guys on here. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, Jim, let's starting out, um, I'd like you to kind of give a little introduction and also introduce uh, Raina and her role. Uh, I believe she took over your position uh, some years back and uh, just kind of give us a, the listeners who haven't heard you on uh, my podcast or other podcasts, tell them a little bit who you are and who you guys are and um, we'll start there. Okay, sounds good. First of all, I'm the proud holder of a Gould's turkey tag this year in the Chiricahuas. Come on. Good for you. I didn't know that. Fantastic. Yep. So my season starts May 8th, and it doesn't mean that I work at the Game Fish Department, so I get a Gould's tag every year. (laughs) I can attest to that because you've you've been on a dry spell for some time. Yeah, I have. I have. And and I'm leaving Friday on a junior um, turkey hunt with my son up in Unit 23, so... Uh, we've got another turkey tag in between those two with my other son, so I'll get a little bit of turkey hunting in this this fall. Fantastic. So I've been uh, I, I started with the Game and Fish Department in the Tucson region in 1992, um, coming over from a master's degree in in South Texas, and I was for 22 and a half years the regional game biologist, called regional game specialist in the Tucson region. And um, we we started, we'll talk a little later after introductions about the, the history of restoration of goulds, but we started thinking about getting gould turkeys back into the Sky Islands back then and throughout my 22 years. That was part of one of the things that I was involved in. And about four years ago, um, maybe five years ago, about four years ago, I moved to a statewide position called Wildlife Science Coordinator, which is a Phoenix-based position. I'm still, um, I still live in Tucson. My position's uh, based in Phoenix, and I just provide science support for the department, make sure that the decisions we make and the policies we have and, and management decisions have a, a good, solid scientific foundation. And so when I left the, the Tucson regional office as the regional biologist for Southeastern Arizona, uh, Raina took over my old position. So um, I'll let her talk a little bit about her background, but um, just to let everybody kind of understand who we are in the department and, and what we're working on. Thank you. Raina? Sure. Um, so I came here from uh, Nebraska about six and a half years ago or so. Um, I used to specialize in bighorn sheep up in northwestern Nebraska. I was a technician up there. Um, I originally moved down here to take a position with a landowner relations program at the department. So um, that gave me a lot of really good background on the area and the different wildlife and habitat to use and also working with private landowners and land managers, at least a lot of the public lands down here. Um, so I was just pleased this much to get into a different position within the department. I love working for the department here, um, where I could focus a little bit more back on wildlife management itself and actually doing some hands-on work with the different species. Well, it's fantastic. I'm glad to hear that. And, um, you know, it's going to be awesome conversation this, uh, this day to talk about the Gould's turkey. It's a, it's an animal that I've, um, gotten to be very very fond of and they're just an amazing animal so it's awesome to have both of you on here uh one of the things i'd like to do is basically let's start at the beginning jim you had mentioned the reintroduction 
program and mentioned that there was, you know, a few turkeys, um, I believe before we went on live that, you know, there was a few around at Fort Huachuca, but there was a major effort that was going to be put forth um, to basically bring the Gould's turkeys back. And now here we are, fast forward, you know, we have uh, Gould's turkeys in just about every Sky Island mountain chain there is and um, have hunts in just about, and you can correct me, in just about every uh, historical mountain range in southern Arizona. So from a turkey hunter, someone who's a turkey fanatic, um, it's an amazing story for someone who's a NWTF member and, you know, proud supporter of what the National Wild Turkey Federation does. It's, it's an awesome story, but also as an Arizona resident and just my love for the state, I think it's one of the most fantastic uh, things uh, that the Game and Fish has done, um, um, among a lot of other things as well, but it's one of the great stories. So why don't you take us back um, to the beginning, and let's kind of start there, and we'll move forward. Yeah, that sounds good. I, I think a lot of people don't really have a, an understanding of the history of Gould's turkeys in southeastern Arizona, and why we have Gould's in southeastern Arizona, and we have Miriam's up on the, the Mogollon Rim. Um, if you look at the, like the archaeological record, I don't want to start too far back but if you look at the archaeological record there isn't really absolute uh proof that we had gould's turkeys in these sky islands they were all gone uh, soon after the turn of the century like a lot of our wildlife were just overexploited. maybe some poultry diseases in some places um, but these mountain ranges were empty in 1920s 1930s 1940s so the game and fish department um, went up into northern arizona and brought miriam's turkeys down into these mountain islands in southeastern arizona and released them um, admittedly small releases, they didn't pour a lot of turkeys in, so there could have been some genetic bottlenecking with just a handful of turkeys being released in some of these mountain ranges, but uh, they did that in the 50s, and, and by the time we got to the 70s and 80s, they were pretty much all gone. They just didn't didn't do very well, and, and looking at the, the ecology of southeastern Arizona and the Sky Islands, they're really more connected with the Sierra Madre in Mexico. Um, if you think about uh, Miriam's turkey and cow's white tail and a lot of species that are tied to that what we call the Madrian oak woodland and the Sierra Madre that comes up into the Sky Islands. We thought of the Game of Fish Department um, and, and others that probably the ghoul's turkey was the, the native animal in, in these Sky Islands. And so we started thinking about bringing some ghouls from uh, Mexico and that they might be better adapted to these arid southwestern uh, mountain ranges with less water and, and just the uh, the environmental conditions are much more similar to, to Mexico. And so in the uh, in the mid-'80s, uh, working with Fort Huachuca, Fort Huachuca um, really led an effort to bring some Gould's turkeys in. So if you think about it, all these mountain ranges were empty, except a few of them had a few remnants of Miriam turkeys from the 1950s. And Huachuca's was one of those mountain ranges that had just a few turkeys uh, in a few pockets here and there. And so the, the Game and Fish Department in, in Fort Huachuca brought in uh, in 1983, they went and caught 17 birds in Mexico. And because they were poultry and, and it bring, coming across the international border, they had to be quarantined for 30 days uh, as part of the, um, the agricultural rules. And after quarantining 17 uh, ghouls turkeys uh, for 30 days, only nine of those survived. So in 83, they released nine birds in, in Fort Huachuca. Um, in 1987, they brought in 29 more birds from Mexico quarantined them again for 30 days, and only 12 of those 29 
survived. So they released 12. So we only had 21 birds released in the mid 80s in, in Huachucas. Jim, um, Huachuca. real fast, mm -hmm. was there a pretty good sampling of males and females uh, in that, or was it a pr predominantly females and, and only a couple males? No, at that time it was at that time it was pretty good. It was um, um, the first nine bird. The, the first nine birds was actually uh, nine females. So they released nine females, and then um, four years later had to come back in and get some males in there. Yeah. So the ones that survived, and so the the one in '87 was five males and seven females. So they got some males in there. So you think about from the mid '80s, you've got a population that's starting with no more than five males total. Right. Um, and, and a few more females in there. And so they limped along um, throughout the, the, uh, the late 80s and early 90s and really didn't increase very fast. Um, and so in the early 90s, our small game supervisor, Ron Ingo Wilson, started talking to some, some uh, contacts in Mexico about bringing some more birds in in the 90s and, um, and starting to, to restore gold turkeys to these mountain ranges in southeastern Arizona. So in 1993, we went down there, and I came on board in 92. So I was part of that first translocation in 93 where we went down into Mexico and used drop nets. And we couldn't use traditional rocket nets or drop nets because they use gunpowder. We couldn't be bringing gunpowder across the border. And so we had a mechanical device that you pulled a string like an old Wiley Coyote uh, Acme <laughs> company trap. You pulled a string and this drop net, this mechanism released all the corners of the drop net and it fell straight down on the birds like a little net um, circuit tent. So we had those down there. We set those up. Um, and in 93, we captured um, 12 birds and, and brought them across. And the significant thing was at that time, our small game supervisor, Ron Ingo Wilson, was able to negotiate um, not quarantining for 30 days and bringing them across. And that was really significant because we knew how many we were leave, losing in uh, in quarantine. And so well, in 93 then, we captured uh, 21 birds, including nine jakes and and, um, and 12 females and brought them across without quarantine. We released them in the Galeros. And we actually had James Earl Kenhammer there from National Turkey Federation at the time because this was a big deal, a big historic translocation to a new mountain ranges. And the Glaros, truthfully, in hindsight, really wasn't the best mountain range at all. But uh, at the time, we felt it was farther away from any poultry operation that might um, cause a disease concern. And that was the original justification. And we released them in the, in the Glaros then. But within a year, 18 of the 21 that we released were dead. So they did very poorly. Um, at that time in, in 94. And we since then have started bringing, we continued to work and, and brought a few other from uh, Mexico. We brought some over in 97 and 2000, 2002 and 2003, and then really started um, having populations in the Chiricahuas and the Huachucas that were doing well enough that we could use birds within the country to help populate some of these other mountain ranges. And we focused most of our sources in uh, Arizona to, to help repopulate other mountain ranges. And we also, the I mentioned that the Huachucas had probably had a few Miriams still walking around in there from the 1950s when, when uh, the fort brought those birds in, in the 1980s. We later went back with the geneticists, collected a whole bunch of samples throughout the Huachucas of turkeys and did genetic analysis. And there's some genetic markers that clearly tell Gould's turkeys from Miriam's turkeys. And we're able to document there was no evidence of Miriam's turkeys in the Huachucas 
in that Wachuca population. All the genetics was 100% ghouls, turkeys there. So that was important, too, to know that we didn't, there was always that suspicion that maybe some of those resident Miriams contaminated that gene pool and they weren't pure, but we were able to document those were pure. Um, and then in the, so starting at that time, um, me as a regional biologist for Southeastern Arizona, we started having a multi-agency twice a year we would meet and it was the Southeastern Arizona Wild Turkey um, Working Group. And we would get together in December in the middle of summer and uh, we had Forest Service, we had BLM there, we had National Wild Turkey Federation, local representatives of the chapter there are two new chapters that were developed in southeastern arizona and we all got together and collaboratively talked about um, what habitat projects need to be done where do we need water where do we need to clear some brush in the bottom of uh, canyons and um, what birds were going to be translocated from where to where because we had these mountain these mountain ranges that were still empty at the time and so we would meet twice a year and we throughout about two decades progressively captured birds in one place, moved them to the other, and restored ghouls turkey populations. The National Wild Turkey Federation local chapters uh, did a ton of work volunteering, doing spring gobbler surveys with us, covering a bunch of the Huachucas first and then some of the other mountain ranges that we still do, and um, putting in habitat proposals through our habitat partnership committee to get funds to do habitat improvement works and burns. And, and so throughout the last several decades, we've worked on habitat and worked on on turkey restoration and now as you said we have ghouls turkey populations and we're hunting ghouls turkey populations in every one of the the traditional southeastern arizona mountain ranges we also have turkeys in riparian areas and, and other places that they were historically along um, river areas so it's really rewarding to look back and look at all of those people that worked so hard to bring uh, ghouls turkeys back and even more rewarding when you get a ghost turkey tag in your pocket and you can go hunt the birds that you had a hand in, in helping to restore back into southeastern Arizona. Yeah, I've got and to so those, imagine that's those, super rewarding for you. I believe you had another Goulds tag, so I think this is your second Goulds tag uh, over the course of 20 years, isn't it? Yeah, now now it's going to really sound like it's rigged. I did have a Goulds tag, tag in the Catalinas in 2000. Uh, 14 uh -huh. and that was really special because I have a son who um, really got me into turkey hunting when he was really young and, and he went hunting with me and he called this bird in and got this gobbler to turn and come back over a ridge coming back towards him and which gave me the shot and um, I shot it with my great-grandfather's uh, 1897 LC Smith side-by-side -side, which is a double trigger double hammer Damascus steel shotgun that a friend loaded some five shot with uh, black powder so it was safe for the damascus barrels so it was uh there's a lot of neat things my son calling the bird in the hunting a population i helped restore using my great-grandfather's old damascus steel shotgun really neat fantastic for sure so there's so many questions i have um one would be just off the top of your head I guess at, at the top of the list of questions I have are, what would you say as far as population, you guys, which mountain range has the most Goulds turkeys right now? I think that would be a good question for Raina because Raina, uh, those twice a year meetings that I talked about that continue to guide Goulds turkey management, even though we've done a good job of repopulating mountain ranges, um, Raina still runs that meeting and has for several years twice a year and, and continue to talk about habitat improvement, continue to talk about 
are there areas we want to move some some goulds and coordinate spring uh, gobbler surveys not in every mountain range but in a lot of them and so for the management aspect of it rain is the rain is the contact um for that what would you say Raina, for Sure, I, can, I can jump in on that. So um, based on our spring surveys that we do in the mountain ranges, um, Jim mentioned that we have huntable populations in just about every mountain range down here. If you count those up, what we have right now are seven different ranges. And of those seven, um, the Chiricahuas and the Huachucas um, have the most birds. The Huachucas, we uh, had a really great survey last year, surveyed 335 turkey and Huachucas. Uh, the Chiricahuas, we did not survey last year, but the year before, they counted 219. So if you look at, like, the five-year average, we're looking around 200 birds on average in the Washitas and 150 in the Chiricahuas observed. That's not the total population. That's just what's seen on survey with the survey route. Sure. That's fantastic. And what would you say out of the seven ranges, what would you say which range has the least amount of population? Um, you know, the... the kind of depends on how you look at it because we can split out mountain ranges like the Patagonias, but they're also pretty interconnected with the Washitas. Um, we maybe don't see as many birds there. The, the other mountain ranges kind of average around 60 birds or so, and they're, they're pretty equal um, across the board. Um, we, I think the distribution across those ranges are all a little bit different, and that's why you'll see different numbers in permits um, and also the numbers of toms and hens get crossed there. Um, but on average, there's around 60 60 or so that we see on survey. Okay, another question I have is it, it sounds like early on there was a bunch of birds that came from Mexico. I'm curious if they came from Chihuahua or northern Sonora. Do you know that, Jim? Yeah, the um, the first nine jakes that we brought over in 93 or 94, I, I pulled the string to capture those birds and then so I don't make myself sound like a hero. I have to admit that the guy that was laying in the blind with me had to wake me up, and tell me <laughs> that there were turkeys under the net, and that I should pull the string. So um, full disclosure on that one. But um, those uh, those birds came from just east of Yekera up into the, the mm. mountains. And so we were based just outside of Yekera. Yep. Um, right on the Chihuahua border then. Yes. Yep. yep. Okay. Yep. Right, right on it. If you look at the border between those states, there's a little kind of a crooked spot on the border, and it's right near there. I think later on in the early 2000s, there were there were negotiations with the Wing Shooter Lodge in Chihuahua. You might be familiar yep. um, with them. And I, I don't know for sure where the birds came from there, but I remember they were talking to the Wing Shooter, and I think we had some birds come from Chihuahua later on. Okay. Good. Or Zacatecas, Jim. I, I thought Zacatecas. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, uh, good. Spreadsheet, but I don't and, know where that is, so enough to get some frame reference. Yeah. And then you yep. guys have so, been able to supplement Durango. from Arizona, from, you know, Huachuca and the Chiricahuas now into other ranges. Is there any anticipation of any more transplants or anything on the books, or is it more of a, you know, maintain what we have and just kind of keep track of, of what's going on? It's a little bit of both. We try to maintain what we have out there, um, what we know of them, um, trying to identify new places where birds are existing and we could maybe add to those populations. Um, we, we are working on um, identifying new places that are appropriate for birds as well. We, all, we do want to be a little bit cautious in um, jumping in and putting turkeys in places that maybe they won't do as well. And so um, the studies like the one that um, Brian Wakeling did on McBillaro's Comparing them to the Wachukas, that kind of information is really crucial to us. And also the um, 
the study that was done just recently in Huachuca is in the other mountain ranges with backpack birds. That kind of information on their habitat use will really help us guide our decisions about where we might want to place birds in the future. Um, we are working on expanding the population in um, Mule Mountains right now, which is a smaller range. Um, but it's it's across it's it's good habitat there too, and um, across part of the range. So, and so the Mule Mountains, I'm familiar with those. Are there any other mountain ranges where you you know you guys as a department have your eye on that there is good habitat and and should be birds other than the mules? Um, we haven't looked too heavily into that at the moment. We've kind of discussed. Um, Oh, Jimmy, I'll have to help me out. 36, uh, 36B, north, north, northwest of Nevada. Yeah, the, I don't spend a lot of time yeah, in there, so. Yeah, we've had a few turkeys make it all the way over the Baba Kibri, across the Altar Valley where the Buenos Aires Refuge is, up into Browns Canyon. Those are just a few um, strays that went over there. The Atascosa Mountains down um, by Nogales, west of Nogales, you know, they have, they have turkeys in them that are connected to Mexico. There really isn't. We've got turkeys in there, Viper Canyon, in that riparian area. Other than the mules, I don't, I don't think there's any other mountain ranges that don't have Gould's turkeys. Maybe the Dos Cabezas. What but, about the Dragons? Um, yeah, you know those are kind of low. They could get turkeys come in, especially in the riparian areas and roost along riparian areas. But mm-hmm. I don't, you know, they just don't have the big the pine component up with a lot of roost trees up high, and the dragoons and and Dos Cabezas are probably in that that group too. What have you guys found is the single biggest threat to the Goulds turkeys in, in this whole restoration project and now having the ability to hunt them in all these different units? What What is the single biggest threat? Well, I'll let Raina think about that. I would say environmental variability, droughts, um, impacting reproduction and impacting mortality. You know, we don't really have a disease issue like you might in southeastern um, United States, where you've got a lot of farms and a lot of poultry here and there. We just don't have much of that in there. Um, we're finding out the, the roost trees aren't as limited as we thought they were. They just roost everywhere. Um, there's water sources that, you know, really aren't bad in most mountain ranges. And, and as you heard from Mike Chamberlain, they'll just go to the bar if they get thirsty, roost <laughs> over the bar, over that, in Rodeo, New Mexico. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the, the funny thing was all the comments on Instagram of people who actually knew where that bar was. <laughs> yeah, that was an amazing story tracking that bird and and her how she just traveled all around in the Chiricahuas and headed over to the bar and roosted there for a couple nights and then headed back on. That was that was crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if your listeners um, realize Mike didn't really mention it, but when Mike Chamberlain was out for that two part series recently. On this podcast, he's been a collaborator in, in um, this Gould's research in the last several years. We we put GPS backpack transmitters, like he was describing, on Gould's hens to get a better idea of their timing of their, their reproduction and their movement and the roost sites that they used. And, and Mike Chamberlain and, and Brett Collier from LSU um, were full collaborators on that. I don't think Mike really mentioned that much about how much Gould's work he was collaborating with us on. You know, I found his conversation to be very fascinating. Um, he's really into turkeys, and, and it's been very well mm-hmm. received by uh, people. That's one one question that uh, you ended up answering for me was uh, when those um, Gould's turkeys first hit the nest and when the incubation period is. Um, kind of like to dive into that a little bit, and because mm-hmm. it 
kind of all ties in with the timing of the seasons and, you know, when is a good time to be harvesting birds, you know, and when they've had a chance to reproduce and all of that. So, and I know even after my podcast, I had a few people ask me, when is that, um, you know, when does the, when do the studies show that the first ghouls lay the first egg and then when do they show Mm -hmm. the main incubation periods? Yeah, and, and that's, it's, it's confusing when you start talking about that because people start talking about when they start nesting, and that's kind of a general statement. You have to, you have to clearly talk about nest initiation, which is normally thought of as when the hen lays the first egg because, of course, the hen will lay an egg in a nest and, and then um, walk around, and then each will lay one egg every day for until the clutch is complete, and it's usually about 12 or 14 days, and so... So one biological benchmark that biologists talk about is nest initiation. And that's normally when they lay their first egg. And then the other thing is when incubation starts. And so they'll lay one egg a day for, for 12 days. And then when they have their full clutch, then they start sitting on the nest and they don't move. That's, that's the initiation of incubation. So you kind of have to be clear about what you're talking about because there's two weeks um, difference in that. And traditionally, turkey biologists just had VHF uh, backpack transmitters, and those are the ones that just send out a radio signal, no GPS on board. Um, you just you use the big antennas. You've seen probably people pointing an antenna in different directions, and when you're pointing right at the bird, the signal's the loudest through your headphones. That's the old VHF uh, signals, and, and at that time when, when we just had that technology, biologists were locating hens really at most once a day. And so you're not going to catch when a hen drops an egg and then goes walks around and then the next day drops an egg. She's walking around for most of the time, and you're not going to even determine when she's starting to drop eggs because she's pretty much walking around. And you're not going to catch her on the nest like you do with a GPS transmitter that, that collects a signal every hour. You can even do it every 15 minutes if you want. Then you, you see when they return to that, um, that egg and then they, they return to the nest and drop an egg. And you can see them coming to that one spot at least once every day and you know they're they're starting to initiate the egg laying and so there's those two things the biologists talk about is the average date when hens are dropping the first egg and that's nest initiation and the average date when they sit and they start incubating and that was always obvious no matter what kind of technology you had because that's the day that the hen stopped moving for 28 days and they'll incubate for about 28 days and they'll just sit on that nest and so no matter what technology you have, it's pretty obvious that she's on a, on a nest. And they get up and they move around. I think Mike talked about it. They do the little forays and they feed and get a drink of water and come back, but they're mostly on the, the nest. So traditional um, harvest, um, what biologists traditionally tried to do to time the breeding season was to time the breeding season so it opened on the, the date of nest initiation. And, and years ago, they didn't know when they started laying eggs, so they were kind of talking about incubation years ago so ideally if you start the hunting season when all the hens are um, average average peak of incubation then you've got all these males running around you've got the females that are sitting on nests they're not going to be walking around sometimes there's concern about females getting accidentally shot um, in that spring season Uh, the turkey hunter i'm not sure all that happens unless it's a bearded hen of course that's a real low percentage one four percent of the population um, but you want to time that season so that you open it ideally when all the hens are sitting on nests or the, the peak of, of nest incubation. But that doesn't work out very well because if you're if you're opening the season that late, 
you can miss a lot of the calling activity. In some years, you, the hunters may miss almost all of the gobbling activity. So that's not good from a hunter perspective. And so biologists have said, well, maybe not opening the season, the average date of nest incubation, but two weeks prior to that, the average date of when they start dropping their first eggs. Let's shoot for opening the season at that point. And that way we'll have um, females near the nest dropping eggs and you still catch a lot of the gobbling activity uh, at that time. And so that was kind of the, that was kind of the goal. That's what biologists were striving for um, once that information came out. But uh, hunters want to have seasons when there's the peak of the gobbling activity because that's when it's funnest. You're, as a hunter, your, your, your satisfaction is tied directly to how many turkeys you see, how many gobbles you hear. And so hunters want that a little bit earlier than biology would would dictate. So some states, and Mike talked about this, have have kind of inched their seasons a little earlier in the calendar to maximize um, hunter enjoyment and hunter satisfaction. And and so as a state agency, you're trying to you have to balance this: what's best for the birds so we don't potentially impact breeding and reproduction, and what's best for for having a good hunting season. Being on either end of the spectrum is not good. Having hunters not hear any gobbles is not good. And killing um, birds wait a lot earlier before the, the actual breeding gets done is not good either. So agencies are always trying to balance that. And I think I sent you the paper that resulted from this Gould's research that we had with hens, where the average nest initiation, when the, the average date that on the average hens had dropped in their first egg was May 17th. Um, and so we're looking at that, those seasons. We, we knew that ghouls were later than our Miriams. Our, our Miriams average nest initiation up on the rim was about April uh, 30th. And we've known that for a long time after some research Brian Wakeling did for our uh, research branch. So April 30th, and then we have the hunts for Miriams up there um, starting not even a week before that and on um, May 1st uh, this year. The um, the Miriam seasons up there on the rim start April 24th this year and May 1st. And so that's right at the peak of when they're starting to drop their first egg. So that's timed really well for Miriam's up there. With with ghouls, we knew it was later. And so we actually, in the last couple of years, we've been cheating our guidelines and going outside of our guidelines to actually hold the hunting seasons a little bit later than our guidelines say because we because of all this, what we're talking about. We don't want to have them too too early for ghouls, and we know that they breed much later. And now, just in the last year, this research has been published, and we have final results. And and where we stand now, even cheating and having our seasons a little bit later for ghouls, we're still about one and a half to two and a half weeks before the peak of nest initiation. And so it's something that we as an agency, this is all brand new information, so we're talking about that, about should we shift that a little bit later in the season to accommodate the birds biologically? Um, but we don't want to shift it too far late in the season where we ruin everybody's hunt and they're, they're not gobbling. We've already got hunters saying it's too late. You need to ship the ghouls earlier because they're gobbling more earlier. We're, we're, we're trying to, um, we're trying to balance biology and, and sociology on this. Yeah. And so it's, we're pretty it's, close. Can I jump in? Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Reina. Can I just jump in the comment with that? Um, one of the things that makes scheduling these hunts really difficult is that our guidelines have a have a schedule that's dictated. It'll say we want it to start on Friday at week 17 or week 18. 
And even though we went outside of guidelines and pushed it forward in week 17, we're also dealing with a calendar ratchet year. And so when you look at which week of the year that, that week 18 or 17 is, it, it's just the way the calendar falls. And so um, our, our hunt recommendations and packages have been set for this year and next year. So it'll be the year after that before we are able to adjust that a little bit and, and see where that week 18 actually lies in the calendar. Yeah, and I, I was thinking when Jim was talking as well, not only do you have those guidelines set years in advance, I think it's you know needs to be noted that the season always starts historically in Arizona. Most all seasons start on a Friday. Uh, uh, the only thing I can think that at the top of my head that doesn't, it's just random on December 1st is bighorn sheep, but you know our deer hunts, our elk hunts, our antelope hunts, the turkey hunts, they all start on a Friday. So I can see from the game and fishes perspective when they're trying to balance all this that you guys are talking about, not only that, when you have, you know, week 17, week 18, whatever it might be, you've got Friday and Friday. Well, at, from a biological standpoint, it might be great to say, you know, let's just bump it back a couple of days. Well, real, the reality is, because of mm-hmm. tradition, you can't really do that because you also try and um, make the hunts that coincide with weekends for pe- for hunters so that they can actually hunt over a weekend as well. So, I mean, there's, I know you guys have a lot to juggle and I know that sometimes you guys face criticism for having seasons early, late and not just turkeys, you know, but there's a lot to kind of balance in there. And you take the fact that you want to start those seasons on a Friday, that also plays into it. Thoughts on that? Yeah, a lot of moving parts, but that's a good point. We Adjustments are only going to be made in one week, inc- one right. week increments. So right. we'd go a Friday earlier or a Friday later. And, and Raina was talking about what we call um, calendar creep, too. So if, it's, if the season opens on Friday the 24th this year, it's going to open on Friday the 23rd next year and Friday the 22nd the next year. So it creeps through the calendar, and then every uh, every seven years, it, it makes a seven-day jump back. Um, and so it, it kind of creeps one day at a time, and then at one point, it jumps like a week back. And so when we when we talk about when the season dates are, that, that season date, like the, uh, like the Goulds Hunt starting May 1st this year, that that week opener on that Friday is going to vary between April 30th and May 6th throughout seven years. Right. And so it's, it's actually moving by itself. And then the other important thing to think about is we talk about the average date of the first egg lay and the average date when they start incubating research shows us that in a population, if you graft all the females, the first day, the day they laid their first egg, there's a two month, yeah. variation yeah it's a bell-shaped curve and sure. they're they're laying their first different females are laying their first egg over a two-month period and so we we talk about the peak so in some respects it's, it's kind of like measuring with a micrometer and then cutting with an axe and we talk about this date and where we're precisely going to have the hunting season in relation to that date and the females are spending two months um laying their eggs it's not a precise date um, and so the best we can do is, is uh, I think the concerns Mike Chamberlain had about being way too early, but two things. One, there's some southeastern states that are like three and four weeks early. And so that's way different than what we're talking about, like a week and a half or two and a half. And then the real important point, and I've talked to Mike in the past about this, is is the 
the exploitation rate or the what percent of the gobblers are we really killing how hard are you hunting them and as rainy talked about we you know we over 200 birds in a couple mountain ranges and those mountain ranges have 24 tags or 30 tags we're hunting them so extremely light and mike and mike chamberlain himself has said you know you're you're closer to an unhunted population as far as when they're when they're gobbling and so we're hunting our ghouls in arizona so conservatively that that's a whole other dimension it probably doesn't matter when the timing is so much just because we're hunting them so conservatively yeah and one other question i would have is some of these ranges like the wachukas uh like the chiricahuas when Raina mentioned those are you know the two probably with the most uh you know heavily populated there's a two hunt structure so there's a first hunt and a second hunt and they're from my perspective from a hunter's perspective in these ranges with the amount of campers and recreational vehicles and stuff there's also a, a period of time there when or and geographic place where it seems like every flat spot you know there's Gould's turkeys but there's also people camping there my question is is it ever been talked about in some of these units that have a ton of birds to go to a three hunt structure or, or is is that would it always be just increasing the number of tags for for each of the two hunts rather than go to a three hunt structure or three timing of season structure if that makes sense i want to take a second here and thank the sponsors of the podcast i want to thank gohunt.com my friend cody nelson the glassing guru he's the optics manager at gohunt.com gear shop if you have any optical needs at all give cody a call directly at 702-847-8747 you can also send him an email at optics at gohunt.com. You can also text him at 602-399-3699. I want to thank GoHunt for their sponsorship. Also remind you guys, we're in application season. The GoHunt Insider is the best Western hunting resource tool out there. It's got the best draw odds and harvest statistics available. You can go to gohunt.com forward slash jscott. Just by signing up, you're going to get a $50 GoHunt gear shop gift card. I want to thank gohunt.com. I also want to thank Kuyu. That's K-U-I-U. Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. Kuyu.com. Kuyu is the gear that I wear on all of my hunts. Phonescope.com, I want to thank them. Use the JScott20 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount on all orders. OnXMaps.com, use the JScott20 promo code. You're going to get a 20% discount on all orders at OnXMaps. And then ApexMunition.com. Apex Ammunition, it's the home of the TSS, the Tungsten Super Shot. That is the shotgun shells that I'm going to be using on my upcoming turkey hunts. Go to apexmunition.com to find out more. Guys, let's get back to the episode. Yeah, we actually do have that option within our guidelines to add that third hunt. Um, We always consider um, hunter access and hunter crowding when we write our recommendations in addition to the density of birds and and the numbers they're reserved and also the hunt success every year. So, uh, we actually have been discussing that in, in recent years since the, most of the bird populations do seem to be growing, especially within those two major mountain ranges. Um, and we are looking at that if we can, you know, increase by just a couple tags, but then maybe redistribute the, um, them throughout the three different seasons so that way there's not as many people in one place. 
Yeah, and we did that in 33 this year. So we've, we've got three different hunts with three tags each in, in the Catalinas. Okay, I didn't, really I, didn't, I didn't see that, but that's that's good. One of yeah. the ranges I've hunted quite a bit is the Catalinas, and it gets a little, you know, gets a little clogged up, whereas I would think a yeah. three-hunt structure, three tags, that would spread it out a little bit. That's yeah, a, I had... That's a huge challenge that we face down here in Southern Arizona is, we have a lot of public land, but the access to them is somewhat limited. There's only so many roads that you get go in that the public can use. And so even though it seems like a huge mountain range and there's a lot of places for cookies to be, the, the access points are kind of limited. So we have, it, we have to do the best we can to um, get people to distribute, you know, through time, if not across space. Yeah, I was wondering, Jay, whether you had experience in 33, because when I had my tag in 2014, I went up and spent a day um, riding with the wildlife manager because to our managing that population, the other populations, he had always talked about how how many areas there are off limits because of cabins, yeah. occupied hard sided structures, the quarter mile radius, and and the ski valley up there. And he had always and I was always trying to get him to add some more tags because the resource was there. We could we could let more people ghouls hunt in Arizona. And he was always complaining about the access. And so I rode with him um, for a day, having some incentive because I had a tag in there, of course. <laughs> But I rode with him a day up on the mountain range, and I, it really opened my eyes. I was astounded how difficult it is to find areas that you can hunt that are more than a quarter mile um, from a hard-sided structure. And I actually killed my bird on the Bigelow Road out to Mount Bigelow. And there's a hard-sided structure at the beginning of that road. It's only a couple yep. miles long. Yep. And there's some cabins at the end of the road, and I killed my turkey in the middle. And, I mean, a, a, another quarter mile either way, and I... It, I couldn't have been able to um, to fire to shoot a turkey. So it it really is difficult in that mountain range, and and that we have those issues in all other mountain ranges that we could have a lot more ghouls tags for people, but it's just really hard to put people in there and and uh, have places to go, have places to shoot turkeys. Well, and speaking of thirty three, you guys also here in the last couple of years. I know Dar's son had it a couple of years ago. The the south of the Reddington Road, I believe, the archery only hunt, which I think was created because of the situation of private property. You thought, man, there's a ton of birds down here, but there's really when you start trying to get boots on the ground and start measuring, you know, where can someone actually legally shoot a bird? I would assume that's what led that to creating that archery only unit there south of Reddington Road and in, in Unit 33, is it not? Yeah, it, yeah, it, um, it started out as, as shotgun, right? I'm no. not sure. That's another area where we have three. We have three seasons, you know, over there on that side of Reddington Road too. The archery hunt is three seasons with one tag each. And and go ahead, Raina. There's there's some private land there. I think was where the turkeys always are, as I understand. Yeah, yeah. And so we were able to get hunters in there um, if it was just archery only, because the the folks that live down there were comfortable with that. They were not comfortable with folks shooting shotguns, and you can't in that area because of the legal restriction. Um, we may butt up against some challenges now that we've also passed the quarter mile archery rule as well. So we'll just have to see what the birds do and where they go in that area. Because there is a good population down there. Just how far are they going to range from, from the ranch houses and the, the resources and stuff available there? I guess the next question I would have for you guys is 
how much more do you see the Goulds expanding and how much capacity? I'm sure it's different from range to range, but I mean, is this one of those things that you're hoping, you know, when maybe the three of us aren't even here anymore or when we can barely walk that all of a sudden, you know, there's just widespread Goulds turkeys and, you know, they've got three or four different seasons and, you know, or are we at a capacity level where it's, you know, you guys are comfortable with, with where it's at, or is it at a capacity where it could double and wouldn't that be great? Where are we at? You know, I've, I've seen in, in my six years down here in this corner of the state and the work that I used to do, um, I've seen a lot of habitat manipulation going on, um, both by private landowners and interested NGO groups. The Turkey Federation has been very active down here in doing habitat projects, and the Forest Service has really started the ball rolling on doing some large-scale habitat um, improvement projects, such as brush, you know, brush management or prescribed fire, and I could, I mean, I could see that continuing on into the future and continuing to improve habitat and connectivity for these birds, and so I, I, I could see them growing as long as the resources are there. Um, we do face challenges with drought, and um, there have been some advancements made with different types of treatments. Um, Quail, have, Quail Forever has been really involved in the Fort Huachuca area, building these uh, one-rock dam structures that are just a series of a single layer of rocks across washes that are meant to slow the water as it goes through and increase infiltration, which can um, improve food resources. So it's, it's pretty labor-intensive, um, fairly expensive, but you can get a lot done. Um, and, and across the landscape and, and have, a, have a big impact there. And so I, I'm seeing those becoming a little more popular down here as well. And I think the more of that is done and the more people work together, I think the, the more chance we'll have that we'll see those, those populations increase. Yeah, the National Wild Turkey Federation for decades has put a ton of labor and and money into habitat improvements in Fort Huachuca and, and all these other mountain ranges too. They they deserve a lot of credit as as conservation partners for us. That's great. And um, that I've got a question about um, Jim. You were talking about that time period when the, the birds, the hens, first lay their egg. But I don't believe, and maybe I missed it, the incubation period. And you, you also pointed out that hens across the board in Arizona have a 60-day, you know, a bell curve on one end. On, on the other, it's 60-day time frame. But when is that incubation period? Um, I'm kind of hopping back to the biology section. Mm -hmm. When is that incubation period? And you mentioned that they sit for 28 days. And in those people that are listening to this podcast that didn't listen to Mike Chamberlain's uh, two episodes where we talked about predation of that hen is super super high when she's laying for 28 days i kind of want to go back to that period so you said may 17th is the average when their gould's turkeys are laying their first egg when is the incubation period the average incubation would be about the 29th may 29th okay but pretty consistently 12 14. to 14 days later so if you just take 17 and add 12 and, and i i have all the individual dates from all the individual hens here it's just not averaged, but on the average, it's 12 days after initiation. So it would be lay the first egg on May 17th, and then um, and then the average incubation on the 29th. And then the hatching date's about 28 days after that. So the range in hatching dates from the hens that we had successfully uh, hatch nests 
the range in hatching dates was June 16th through August 6th. Now, August 6th is August 6th is really late. That may have been I when I looked at that date, I thought, I wonder if that was a renest. I wonder if that was a yeah. failed yeah. nest, and mm-hmm. then she renested because that's so late. So if you throw out the the August sixth, then the other the next latest is um, July twelfth. That's probably a better number. It's probably like from mid June to mid July is when they're hatching. Uh, it's something that's jumping out in my mind when you say those dates. Being someone that you know from Arizona here, and you know. It, it totally corresponds with our monsoon rains, which normally start around the 4th of July to the 15th of July, right in there. Do you think uh, that's not a coincidence? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Same with our, if you look at our deer, our fawning, um, the peak of whitetail fawning is, is uh, first week in August. Mule deer a little bit before that, but early early August in, in mule deer and uh, mid-August in, in whitetail. And like you say, that's no coincidence. You get summer rain starting July, you get the green up, and so now you have fawning cover after a few weeks after the monsoon start. You've got fawning cover, you've got nutrition for the lactating doe, and it's the same thing with turkeys and turkey poults. They need that green vegetation and need the insects that come with the monsoon rain. So that's exactly why goulds coming from the Sierra Madre and um, southeastern Arizona are, are timed that way. That's what drives getting those young ones to survive at the best time of the year drives the the evolution of the timing of the breeding season on anything. An- another thought that came to my mind is the fact that Arizona, and I'm curious how it stacks up against any other state, we actually have three species of turkeys. We have the Merriams, the Goulds, which we've been talking about, the Merriams, you know, in primarily the central and eastern part of the state and even up on the Kaibab, but then on the uh, north of the Colorado River on the Arizona Strip, we now have Rio Grande turkeys. Um, I'm just trying to think in my mind, I think we've got to be the only, well, I, I shouldn't say the only state, but with three species of turkeys. But there can't be many states that have, have all three. I mean, I can think of Florida with Eastern and Osceola. I can think no, I, of Texas with Eastern and Rio. I can think of Washington with Rio and and... Well, Washington may have Rio, Eastern, and because I've heard they have Easterns and Merriam, so we might be tied with Washington. But it's it's interesting that we Arizona, as arid of a state as we are, we are one of the states that has three different types of turkeys. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that before. And why does Washington have Easterns? I I don't know the answer <laughs> to that, and I could For be wrong. <laughs> but I've For always the same heard reason Arizona has Rio. Yeah, exactly. I've heard that they actually have Eastern turkeys as well, and hopefully the people from Washington can correct me. But I'm pretty sure I'm right on that. Um, and let's just take a quick just break here to ask uh, Jim, Raina. You you may not be familiar with it as much as Jim, uh, but feel free to, to chime in. How is our Rio Grande turkey population doing uh, north of the Colorado River? Yeah, Raina, if you know that, you can take it because I don't have no, I got nothing. I <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's nine know. hours from us. In my region, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Uh, it, with the, when I look at the tag numbers, it looks like that they're doing well because it seems like they're, you know, have been increasing and keeping the tag numbers the same. So, um, I guess that's another podcast for another day and talking about our Rio Grande turkeys. But I do think it is fascinating that a state 
when you mentioned to most people, you know, they, they don't even know we have mountains and, and pine trees. You mm-hmm. know, they think we're all just mm-hmm. a big desert, but we have three of the, of the turkeys. It's pretty neat. Yeah. It really speaks yeah. a lot to the diversity of our state and the different types of habitat you can find here. I was amazed when I moved down here. You can drive two hours in any direction and find yourself in a completely different environment. And so it just supports a good variety of wildlife and makes it a nice place to hunt. That's for sure. All right, guys. So with the Goulds uh, seasons coming up here, um, you know, obviously the start date of May 1st uh, for the Goulds, I think from everything we've been talking about from a biological standpoint, it's a great, great start date, especially for the birds. And, you know, normally where the success rate on Goulds, I don't know the exact figure, but it's super, super high, probably compared to even Merriam's, Um, you know, from a perspective of trying to keep our goulds as healthy as possible i think you know having these having this may 1st start date i think is fantastic yeah another thing about the you mentioned um we were talking about the three hunts that are available and they're they're used currently only in unit 33 when we add that third hunt it comes before the first hunt in all the other units and so because of our harvest is so low, it's really not an issue biologically, like we were talking about disrupting the, the male hierarchy mm-hmm. that, that Mike Chamberlain was talking about. It's not really an issue biologically because, like in Unit 33, we've got three tags in each hunt. But one thing to keep in mind, if, if someone really likes that idea of spreading out the number of tags instead of in two hunts and three hunts because then you have left, less competition while you're hunting, one thing that does is it moves it now three weeks ahead of nest initiation. It's kind of going in the wrong direction when we had that third hunt. And, and as I said, the, our harvest rate's so low, it's, um, it's really not an issue with goulds, but it, it's another thing to think about. We're getting well, farther away from that. Well, it's something to keep your eye on that, you know, you don't get a few years down the road and you look back and go, gosh, we've been, this third hunt is a great idea, but we've now been harvesting and maybe it does at some point you know, get into mm-hmm. harvesting too many birds and too early. So, I mean, I definitely think it's yeah. something to think about, but that's a good point that you talk about the third hunt structure and it actually goes in the beginning. Rather, I would just think it would start and then go, mm-hmm. you know, at the end. So um, that's a good point. And, well, you know, something you know, else. Another, go ahead. Sorry, another another point to make, too, is that we don't have to distribute the tags equally between the three hunts. We could do, mm-hmm. if we need to add that third, third hunt we could have a smaller number of tags in that one just so that the impact is a little bit less during that um, critical time period and then just use the other two for the remainder yeah and it's funny too about talking about turkeys uh from my perspective if you're talking about deer or bighorn sheep or elk things like that a lot of times i'm not a huge proponent of the two hunt structure because of what I see out there as a professional guide and out there in, in the field is it puts a ton of pressure on the resource. I think when you're talking about Gould's Turkey where it's few tags and the success rate is so high that you could get away with doing a few more seasons and going with more of kind of a hunter enjoyment, better experience. Whereas I think if I've ever been critical of units for deer or elk that turn into a two-season hunt structure or even sheep we could talk about some of the stuff you know in in 37a i believe where it's like yeah but you know you get a whole new group of hunters that comes in and they're just gung-ho and they're just hammering the resource then 
you know, if you put them all in at the same time, most hunters go for two or three days and they never go again. And, you know, they, they go the first two or three days and then they're gone. Whereas if you do a double hunt structure, they, you know, it's a fresh group coming gung ho, bang, bang, bang. And, you know, so that I've, I've debated that on this podcast as well. Um, we don't need to go into that, but I'm just curious your thoughts on that, Jim. Yeah, I think with like you said, with with ghouls, it's not an issue. People are going in, and and probably Raina may know this, but probably the average days per harvest of a ghoul's turkey is probably one. Yeah. So they're going in, they're shooting a gobbler, and they're gone. I can I never thought about that, but I can see your point. If you have three back to back bighorn sheep hunts, and each tag holder has thirty people glassing, there's a lot of people out there in the field. Yeah, and I mean, I think on the deer hunts as well. Um, I think the deer hunts as well, where it's, you know, lots of camping, lots of ATV riding, lots of, you know, disturbing, disturbing, disturbing. I think that's a fine line. Uh, but again, that's, that's a whole nother conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, anything, mm-hmm. anything that you feel like we're leaving out about a good Gould's conversation or anything you guys want to bring up? Um, I think now is a good time for that. I have a question for you with your experience in, in, um, Northern Mexico, you're in Chihuahua, right? You're not in Sonora? So I do. Where you do most of your hunting? I do northern Sonora and northern Chihuahua, both. Okay. What, what's your um, your thoughts? Do you have a feeling for peak of gobbling activity? What, another piece of information, too, that um, from all that research Mike Chamberlain and, and Brett Collier and, and a lot of their graduate students were involved in, is we people talk about, well, the peak of gobbling is here, or there's a bimodal peak of gobbling. They're, they, you know, they gobble a lot with um, the breakup of the fall, um, um, flocks, and then they gobble a lot at the nest initiation. When when that group there, University of Georgia, started really looking fine scale at gobbling. Remember, he talked about those uh, automated gobbling detectors, just mm-hmm. just the frequency um, sound detectors. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he can go in and strip out just that gobbling frequency. Probably get some car door slams and some coyote calls in there too. <laughs> but but you look at the gobbling. <laughs> But if you look, they've got some graphs of like, here's 2015. Here's the number of calls they detected each day throughout the whole season. And so you can see when, if there was a peak in gobbling activity. And then the same area the next year, same area, and you look at you look for a peak in gobbling activity, and it's different. So the, the, whether there's a single peak or a double peak is really variable. Um, it's really difficult to define. It's not just simply saying the peak of gobbling is here. Um, but I was still, I'm, I'm, so I'm curious what your thoughts were, because I'm sure you know when you want to have most of the clients down with because of gobbling, because they're just going crazy. Yeah. I'm wondering I mean, when that is. And, yeah. When I see, so this, this Mexico is a little up in the air, whether I'm going this year or not. I, I've canceled my April hunts, but still hoping to do maybe a couple in May. We'll see. Um, but this would be my 11th season down there consecutively. So for, you know, the last 10 years, I've been able to sample pretty good, um, that Mm -hmm. exact question. And what I always tell people, and a lot of people from, uh, the East and the Midwest, they, they scratch their head and they're like, come on, there's, I say they gobble as good the last day as they do the first. And I really Uh don't notice a big difference. And that would be a question I would kick back to you. So. I don't notice a big difference of on the limb roosted gobbling in the morning or on the limb roosted gobbling in the evening from, you know, say the third week of April when I go down there to say mid-May, about a three-week period from say 
April 20 to May 15th is kind of the window when I go and they they seem from my observation of just listening to gobble the same on the limb. Now I will tell you gobbling on the ground they seem to gobble a little bit more throughout the day in the earlier part of the season as opposed to when it gets a lot warmer in May. So I wonder if the temperature you know, on say May 10th has more to do with them not gobbling at noon as opposed to April 23rd when we're out there and it's cooler and they're going to gobble more during the day. So from a behavioral or biological perspective, I don't know the answer. I can just tell you that roosted birds, they seem to gobble exactly the same from the first time I go down there to the very last hunt. They seem the same. Uh, but from a temperature standpoint, I have seen, you know, those really warm days in May where they kind of shut down, if you will. They'll still gobble. They'll still come into a call, but they may not hammer and gobble quite as much as they would have, you know, the 24th of, of April. So I would kick it back to you and say, is that a behavioral thing or is that a temperature thing? You know, that they're just, it's, they're hot and they're, you know, they're, they're loafing around and they don't want to gobble. Yeah, I, I think the gobbling being more consistent at roost makes sense to me. There's more behavioral stuff going on there. The gobbler's announcing his presence, and and um, that makes sense that that would be more consistent, and it would be less consistent once you're walking around looking for hens, depending on the when the hens are nesting, where they are in the nesting cycle, depending on the heat and the weather. Um, it's interesting to me, like I was talking about those graphs, when you look, you can kind of see some sort of peak. You have to really squint and turn your head sideways to see peaks and gobbling when they actually collect real data like they have with the with these um, sound, automated sound meters. Um, and so I think this whole idea of a peak and gobbling is really muddy, and there's so many factors. But one thing I wonder, uh, where you're hunting, there's no doubt that um, well, some of the more recent research has shown that when hens start, start um, incubating, the gobbling goes up, and that makes sense. You think about, well, now those hens are not walking around, so now there's more males per females available, and so there's more competition. The gobblers might be gobbling more because there's more competition for fewer available females, but at the same time, and this is confounding all of this information about gobbling peak, the same time, gobblers are being removed from the field. Correct. And so you've and, got less and females have, available. And have been pressured. So, yeah, right, so they've right. been that's, killed, that's and, and they've been removed, and they've gotten mm -hmm. pressure. So... I would say, not to just jump right in here on top of you, but I would love to see that same study on a big chunk of ground on birds that don't get any pressure. And then I would say, okay, now we can look at that and go, okay, this is a peak gobbling mm -hmm. time. When, you know, if you're doing a survey and, you know, up on the rim or up in the Kaibab, you know, on Merriam's turkeys, and then all of us, you know, they're gobbling good. And then all of a sudden 600 people roll in. Mm -hmm. Well, the gobbling meter is probably going to go down because the amount of pressure yeah. and they feel that presence and, you know, no but, doubt. But yeah, and I think a true study would be on a piece of property that there is no hunting pressure and just see what it, I would be so fascinated with that. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'll send you the paper um, awesome. because the, the, the group at University of Georgia has done that on, they're at University of Georgia, but right across the border in South Carolina is the Savannah River Ecology Site, and they've just done decades and decades and decades. It's really a research station for University of Georgia, even though it's in South Carolina. And and actually, a friend of mine, Gene Rhodes, is the director um, there, 
been been doing genetic work and stuff with him forever. Um, but they did, and that's not hunted on the Savannah River Ecology site. And so they did a study where they looked at gobbling where there's no hunting at all. And they found that um, I think a third or half of the gobbling happens um, after the hunting seasons on other surrounding land mm-hmm. that is hunted. Mm-hmm. After the end of the hunting seasons, in an unhunted area, they're still finding a third to half of the um, gobbling happening after the Just surrounding nuts. hunting season. And I so mean, if it's not hunted at all, there's actually a lot of gobbling going on. And where it's hunted in the surrounding area, like Mike said, they're, they just, they're shutting up. And it's both removal of birds and disturbance of, of hunters in the woods. And, you know, temperature, like you were talking about, is another another factor. But, but definitely the removal of birds and the disturbance and hens becoming um, unavailable, those are all factors affecting gobbling activity which is why it looks so chaotic yeah and i think you know people listening to the podcast are probably in their minds thinking well how does this information correlate to me going up and going hunting and how does this make me more successful i think one of the things that you know we can point out here and then and then we'll probably conclude is you know in the early season when gobblers are trying to attract the hens and they're trying to create you know establish their hierarchy and and you know the pecking order you know you've got a lot of gobbling and then in that period where you know i call the lockdown period where those gobblers are really locked in with hens you know and it's it's notorious goulds aren't as much because they seem to gobble all the time compared to a lot of birds but you go back east and other places where you guys say they gobbled a couple times on the limb in the morning they flew down with the hens they never made another peep that kind of lockdown period then you've got the period where they the hens kind of start prospecting for a nest lay their first egg and then there's a period where they're you know for 12 days you said are leaving and going to lay another egg well that's when some of these later seasons and guys listening in arizona we have a pretty liberal time frame of a season Sometimes later in the season, as far as you calling as a hunter and making a call and maybe not having a bird just fire and gobble and gobbling the whole way in, but calling birds in late season can be very effective because those hens are leaving and going to the nest and and laying those eggs. And that leaves those gobblers receptive to that calling because the hens are all leaving. Any thoughts mm-hmm. on that, Jim? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Counterbalancing that is, is gobblers um, getting harvested and, and taken home. But that, what you said is definitely true. Yeah. Uh, anything else that you feel like we've left out here in a Gould's conversation? I would just you know, close by. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Raina. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say you were you were talking about that period before um, before the nest initiations and the, the peak, the early peak gobbling. There's nothing to prevent them from going out in the field and scouting and figuring out where the birds are hanging out, what they're doing, and then coming back to that area during the hunting season. So if they want to really hit the peak gobbling, go find them then. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, I mean that's you know a lot of times these these junior seasons, uh, you know, talking about Merriam's hunting, you know, you can get some phenomenal gobbling. Uh, one because I think it's early in the season; they haven't felt that pressure yet. Uh, but you know, I think. I tell people on my Instagram all the time, they're asking me, how early is too early to scout? Well, it's never too early to scout. And quite honestly, by April 1st, you know, at, at sun up and at, at sun up and sundown, birds are going to be gobbling from the limb. 
and it's a great time to be out there listening for birds and trying to establish, you know, roost areas and where different birds are. And leading up to the hunts, that's a fantastic uh, time. And glad you made that point. It's that's the time to be out there trying to figure out where your turkeys are at, just listening, marking them down, and moving on and trying to establish as many roost sites as you can. For sure. I, I would say, despite all of the science that we talked about, if you've got a tag, the more time you're spending out in the field, the better chances you're just going to you're just gonna get near one of those gobblers that's going to respond. So don't worry about the science. Just get out there. You guys, it's been awesome having you both on here. I really appreciate it. And um, I love to hear the passion in both of you's voices about the Goulds turkeys. And just want to thank you guys. Uh, you Sometimes... I'm sure it's a thankless job and sometimes you don't get the pats on the back and don't get the thanks that you, you, you guys deserve. So, you know, for, I'm saying for a lot of hunters, thank you, uh, for the work that both of you have done with all of our animals, uh, and especially the Goulds turkeys. And I really appreciate both of you carving out some time and coming on here to talk about, uh, Goulds turkeys and, uh, just wish both of you safe, uh, safety and, um, you know, hopefully we can get through this whole COVID-19 mess and, and, uh, get it on the, get it in our rear view mirror and, uh, hope family and friends and colleagues all stay safe out there. Thank you very much for having us on. All right. All right. You too, Jay. Thanks. Take care guys. Thanks. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.